the pattern of the day of rest, of a day of corporate worship. I think it's given for our goods. It's how we were created to operate. We need to remember that we weren't created for constant work, for constant striving in this world. We were built to share in the joy of God's rest. Welcome to Encounter the Truth with Jonathan Griffiths. And Jonathan, that is so countercultural. I don't know what it is about us, but we seem to be so almost proud of all that we set out to accomplish and the pace that we run each and every day. And uh, I hear you saying, no, it's God's plan for us to at least take some time every once in a while and to slow down and to rest. We are so hardwired to measure our importance by our busyness. And it can be a point of pride that, you know, I'm so I'm so busy. My phone's going the whole time. My email's going the whole time or or I need to be at, at work, you know, dawn till dusk every day. And we need to unlearn that a little bit as Christians. And it's for our health and for our good to take rest. And however exactly different Christian groups think about this idea of, of Sabbath and one day in seven and all this kind of thing, there, there are a variety of views about it. And I don't mean to get into that very deeply here, but I do think the creation pattern of taking one in seven to down tools and to restore our strength to invest in relationships, particularly within the family of God. It's so important, perhaps more important than ever. And it does us good to hear the teaching of Jesus on this. So let's do that. Let's open our Bibles together to Matthew chapter 12 as we begin a message called The Light Burden of Jesus Christ. Here is Jonathan. In our last passage, at the end of chapter 11, Jesus issued the beautiful and the familiar invitation, which is treasured by all his followers. Many will know it well and love it well. Matthew 11 and verse 28, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Now, those are very beautiful words. Those are truly wonderful words. We see that right away as we read them, but of course, we need to consider exactly what it is they mean. What does Jesus mean when he offers us rest? What does Jesus mean when he says that his burden is light? Very often, you and I, we gain clarity through contrast. My wife has been pointing out for a little while that our windows at home are ready for a clean. It's been a number of months since we've cleaned them, so they probably are ready. In a certain kind of light, I can, I can see that. But much of the time, I like to tell myself that they look okay, and I'm able to ignore it because it's not really a job I want to tackle. Many of our windows in our house are actually in, in sort of sets of two, two windows next to one another in one opening. Now, I do know full well that if I went and cleaned one window, one pane, and not the other within this double set, suddenly the contrast would be overwhelmingly obvious between the two. Next to the clean one, the dusty one will be shown up in all its filth. Contrast often gives us a clearer picture of reality, helps us to see things as they truly are. 
Here in chapter 12, Jesus comes face to face with some of the key religious leaders of his day. And we see from them, from their words and from their actions, we see from them actually what the opposite of true rest looks like. We see from them something of the heavy burden that they would lay on the backs of the people. And as Jesus begins to engage with these different leaders who are actually so unlike him, we see more clearly who Jesus is. And we see more clearly what is the rest, the light burden that he offers. Matthew highlights for us the fact that Jesus brings true rest, authentic rest, in utter contrast to what the Pharisees offer. Now, the Lord's mandate of one day of rest in seven, a day for sort of downing tools, ceasing from labor, setting aside time for worship, its roots go right back to the creation pattern where God himself created for six days and then rested on the seventh. It was enshrined in the Ten Commandments and it was a fixed feature of life in Israel. It also became a matter of particular emphasis for the religious leaders and teachers of Jesus' day. The Pharisees, whom we meet in verse 2, were a group of teachers within Israel who emphasized meticulous care in the keeping of the Old Testament law. That was a key concern for them, and they had adopted a whole series of guidelines surrounding the Sabbath to help people to be careful to keep that particular law. This was actually typical of their approach in general. They tended to take a single stipulation from the Old Testament law and work out in practical terms how to stay as far as possible away from breaking it from every angle. That was sometimes called fencing the law or hedging the law. When it came to the Sabbath law, there was plenty of scope for this kind of reflection. What counted as rest? What counted as work? What could you do and not do in very practical terms on that particular day? I gather that when income tax was first introduced in Canada, I think in 1917, the new Income Tax Act ran just shy of 4,000 words. That was basically enough space to articulate the fact that people needed to give the government a certain fixed portion of their income. It was a simple document outlining a pretty simple law. Now, since that time, over the last century and more, the rules and regulations have ballooned, I gather, to just over one million words. The original law has been hedged and fenced and made more detailed to the point that almost no one has a truly comprehensive knowledge of it or understanding of it. The Pharisees were very good at taking simple laws and adding rules and regulations and stipulations to them. In the case of the Sabbath law, they didn't quite add a million words, but they did articulate fully 39 different categories of activity that were prohibited on the Sabbath. Now remember, Jesus has just offered rest to his followers, to anyone who would come to him. In a sense, that's the theme at the heart of this section of Matthew's gospel. Jesus, the Messiah, he offers rest, and it's a wonderful thing. But if you asked a Pharisee in Jesus's day how it is that people may receive rest in God's plan, they would almost certainly very quickly begin to speak in very practical terms. They would point to the seventh day, they would point to Sabbath observance. 
The Sabbath was the day of rest, observing the Sabbath, avoiding the 39 categories of prohibited activity. That was the way to access rest. And so verse 1, it actually takes us to the heart of the question of true rest, the Pharisees' vision of it and Jesus' vision of it. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry and they began to plug heads of grain to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. You can almost picture the Pharisees sort of lying in wait, just watching the disciples as they amble their way through the field, looking for an opportunity. The Pharisees, they view the action of the disciples as a kind of reaping and thus a prohibited category of work, thus an illegal activity. And they, they want an answer from Jesus. What's he going to do with this? They want Jesus actually to condemn the disciples for their infraction. They probably want a punishment, which would have been typical in that day. Jesus's answer to them is quite fascinating, and it comes in multiple parts. In the first instance, he takes us back to an incident in the life of great King David when he was fleeing from Saul in 1 Samuel chapter 21. David and his men, they were on the run, and they were hungry. They didn't have a food supply. And so they went into the tabernacle and ate the sacred bread of the presence, which was there only for the priests to eat. They broke the rules, formally speaking. But David wasn't condemned for that, Jesus points out. Allowance was made, presumably because there was a real physical need. The niceties of the law don't trump merciful action to meet human need. And then Jesus points to the work of the priests in the temple, verse 5. How they profane the Sabbath by doing priestly work on the holy day, but yet they are held guiltless when they do so. And then Jesus makes this very intriguing statement of verse 6. I tell you something greater than the temple is here. Well, there's something greater. It is, of course, Jesus and his kingdom. And the point is that if the temple itself provided sufficient cover and sufficient authority for the priests to be allowed to do what is not normally allowed, then Jesus himself, who is now the very presence of God among the people, that which the temple building only symbolized, he provides sufficient cover and sufficient authority for his people not to be found guilty for activity on the Sabbath. The Pharisees, they don't understand any of this. And they don't understand God's true desire expressed in these words quoted from Hosea chapter 6. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. That is, they don't understand that God is fundamentally interested in mercy shown to the needy rather than in empty religious ritual. He doesn't want people who just go through the religious motions. He wants people with changed hearts who are moved with the Lord's compassion for one another. If they understood the Lord's heart, says Jesus, the Pharisees would not have condemned the guiltless who simply picked up heads of grain to satisfy their hunger. Now, at this point in the discussion, it would be quite easy for us to focus our attention on the matter of the Sabbath narrowly and to try and discern what is permissible or not permissible on the day of rest, to figure out what the new rules are perhaps for us. But Jesus isn't interested in landing the discussion there. He's making a bigger point, and this is how he sums it up. This is where he's going, verse 8, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. 
You see, Jesus, he's not actually all that interested in having a debate with the Pharisees about their nitpicking rules over the Sabbath. He's not trying to update the rule book. He's not trying to edit the regulations. He is saying something more fundamental and more sweeping. He is Lord of the Sabbath. He is the one in charge. He is the authoritative interpreter of the law. And so his disciples, they are fine, and they are guiltless, and they are free. And here's why. Jesus Christ has declared it to be so. The Son of Man, he is Lord of the Sabbath. David, he was able to lead his followers to do something that was acceptable to God, but strictly not in line with the rules. And surely he was able to do that at least in part because he was the great king. But now a greater king is here. The priests, they were able to serve on the Sabbath because they were in the temple. They were in the place of sacred service in the very presence of God. But now one greater than the temple is here. The Son of Man, he has authority over all things, all rules, all regulations, all law. He is Lord, and his word goes. When it comes to the Sabbath, his concern is not the niceties of regulation, but mercy. His concern is not legislation, but human need. The religious leaders of Jesus' day, they emphasized a day of rest, but it was actually a terrible burden. It invoked guilt and condemnation. Jesus doesn't say, you know, a day of rest, it doesn't matter at all anymore. It's no longer relevant to human flourishing. He doesn't say that, but in mercy and grace, he models here. He, he shows us what it is to rest in him and to find freedom in him. You're listening to Encounter the Truth with Jonathan Griffiths and a message called The Light Burden of Jesus Christ, part of our series, Living as Kingdom People. And if you ever miss a broadcast in the series, you can always come and listen online. You can stream the program or download an MP3 for free. Our website address is EncounterTheTruth.org. Well, as you give a gift and support the ministry this month, we want to say thank you by sending you a book written by Bob Lapine, The Four Emotions of Christmas. Sometimes we expect Christmas to be one thing, a season filled with magic, a, a fantastic day, and we end up disappointed because that's not our experience. Leaves us asking the question, is there anything that could bring us lasting joy? That's what this book is about. We'd love to send you a copy as our way of saying thanks for your support. You can find out more or give online when you come to our website, EncounterTheTruth.org, or call us at 1-833-99-TRUTH. Again, the website, EncounterTheTruth.org. Back to the message. Here is Jonathan. There's plenty of debate in contemporary Christianity about the place of a day of rest. Does the concept continue in any way in the new covenant? Well, there's a lot of debate about it, lots of different views, and we can have grace with one another about taking different views on it. My own view is that the pattern of one day of rest in seven is grounded in creation and fulfilled in Christ. True rest comes through Jesus and trusting in him. But the pattern of rest is not fulfilled in such a way that it is totally then set aside in practical terms by Jesus. After the resurrection, what we discover is that believers gathered on the first day of the week rather than the seventh, and the Lord's Day, as it came to be called, it had a special significance as the day marking the victory and the joy of the resurrection. It was, it was meant to be a different day. It was a different day, a day for worship, 
a special day for the people of God, but no longer called the Sabbath and not simply just an updated Sabbath. It was markedly different from the law-bound day that the Pharisees observed. But I think the pattern of the day of rest, of a day of corporate worship where we set aside time to be able to be here and not somewhere else, I think it's given for our good. It's how we're, we were created to operate. We need to remember that we weren't created for constant work, for constant striving in this world. We were built to share in the joy of God's rest. And that rhythm of one day in seven that is somehow different, that is given to corporate worship, that is given to spiritual refreshment, it reminds us weekly of the gospel rest that we have in Jesus. Now, all the details of that, it's a longer discussion, and there's lots of debate around it, of course. But at this point, we need to just register the fact that Jesus doesn't say here to ignore the pattern of rest in the week. That's not the big point he's making, but he shows us that the day was never given for the enslavement of the people of God, far from it. And as Lord of the Sabbath, he shows us the merciful and gracious intent of God behind it. The Sabbath controversy, it continues in verse 9. Jesus now moves into the synagogue, the place of Sabbath gathering. And right away, he encounters a man with a disability, a withered hand. And the Pharisees, they again see an opportunity here to catch Jesus out, verse 10. And they asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? So they might accuse him, we're told. This man, he's presumably had this ailment for a long time, maybe since birth. His healing, maybe it could wait 24 hours without any further detriment. This isn't a life-threatening emergency. What's Jesus going to do? Oh, let's catch him out, they think to themselves. Jesus replies by pointing out that almost anyone would be willing to help an animal in distress on the Sabbath. Most Jewish groups recognize the appropriateness and the legality of doing that. And so he reasons, verse 12, of how much more value is a man than a sheep so it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Jesus then mercifully heals the man. His hand is restored. That's no shock to us, of course. We know that Jesus is the merciful healer. He delights to make broken people whole. But the real shocker here is the response of the Pharisees. And it is shocking, verse 14. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. The merciful, rest-giving, life-restoring, health-imparting, saving work of Jesus Christ, it is so detestable and hateful to the Pharisees that this becomes for them the final straw. And from now on, they are determined to see him dead. It is this work of giving wholeness and health and salvation and rest that actually determines the course they will have Jesus nailed to the cross. See, what we are seeing here is not simply a debate or a difference of opinion about how to honor the Sabbath, how to treat a day of rest. What we are seeing here is actually the very heart of the clash between worldly religion and the true salvation rest that Jesus brings. The skewed religion of the Pharisees, it spoke of rest. It used the language of rest 
But their vision of rest was nothing more than a burden on the back of the people. The Pharisees, they dealt in rules and regulations. That was their currency. They dealt in accusation and condemnation. And the telltale sign of the true nature of their religion, it came out in their attitude to the people involved in this drama. The hungry disciples who plucked the grain to satisfy their hunger, there was no mercy for them, no consideration of their physical need. All the Pharisees could see was an opportunity to accuse and then to condemn. The man with the withered hand, his physical need meant nothing to the Pharisees. He was merely a prop in their drama to be used, an opportunity to catch Jesus out, nothing more, no more significance to him. And wherever we find legalism, wherever we find worldly religion, this is going to be the telltale sign. This is how we'll recognize it. Rules will reign. Religious performance will be a burden. Failure will lead to condemnation and mercy. It goes right out the window. Now, right there, that's just a warning for us. And perhaps a diagnostic as well. It's a warning because the fact of the matter is that legalism can so easily seep back into the church of Jesus Christ. Even though the church is formed by the gospel and rooted in grace, an uncompromising legalism, it seeped into the religious life of Israel in Jesus' day. Even though God's design was always for a community of grace and of mercy, we see what happened here among the Pharisees. And it, it seeps into the church all too easily today. I expect there will be those here and those listening who look at the profile of the Pharisees and their worldly religion, their legalism, their merciless execution of their rules and their rights, and you recognize within that some shadow of a church experience you have had, perhaps years ago, perhaps in childhood or something like that. And the truth be told, you know this kind of thing all too well. It's all too familiar to you. Rules reign. People get chewed up. Mercy is out the window. Ever seen that? Ever experienced it? And friends, we need to recognize the ugliness of this kind of thing. And we need to be carefully on our guard against it. It is here as the utter contrast to the heart and the message of Jesus. And so as a church, we need to be very careful, don't we, that we don't add in rules and regulations that go beyond what the Scriptures actually say. We need to be careful that our fixation is not modifying behavior, but changing hearts through the gospel of grace and in the power of the Spirit. How easily, even in churches that name the name of Jesus, how easily rules and regulations, traditions that go beyond the Scriptures, how easily they become everything and people get chewed up and steamrolled over in the process. We need to see, friends, how fundamentally different is the message of Jesus from the heartless legalism of worldly religion. How fundamentally different is the true rest that Jesus brings.
In this clash of visions over the Sabbath, we've seen a vivid illustration of the contrast between worldly religion and the yoke of Jesus Christ. We've seen the the cloudy window and the one that is crystal clear and bright. We've seen the utter contrast between the imposed and burdensome rest of the Pharisees and the true rest of Jesus Christ. We've seen the merciful heart of Jesus and the freedom that belongs to those who follow him. But what we haven't quite seen yet is the basis of this rest, how it is and why it is that Jesus brings this kind of rest to those who would trust in him. Jonathan Griffiths here on Encounter the Truth, taking a look at what Jesus offers, how he brings true, authentic rest, And he does so because he's the true servant of the Lord. Our message is called The Light Burden of Jesus Christ. And if you've missed any part of today's broadcast or any previous broadcast in the series, Living as Kingdom People, you can always listen at our website. It's EncounterTheTruth.org. You can stream the program or download an MP3 for free. Again, our website address is EncounterTheTruth.org. Well, for our Bible teacher, Jonathan Griffiths, and our producer, Mark Bretta, I'm Steve Hiller. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll join us next time.